to another episode of I'm Coming Out, the podcast where well-known people tell me, Johnny Harvey, their coming out stories. And today's guest is Stephen Carter Bailey. Stephen was a runner-up on the Great British Bake Off in 2017, which was regularly watched by over 7 million people every week. Throughout the series, he received three star bakers and several much sought-after Hollywood handshakes. He was also the winner of the Great New Year Bake Off 2019. Stephen has worked as a special reporter for ITV News and is currently appearing at food festivals around Britain. I really wanted to interview Stephen because I am a mahoosive Great British Bake Off fan and I'm obsessed with his Instagram, where he posts lots of pictures of his incredible baking creations and his really cute British Bulldog Florence. I met up with Stephen early on a Saturday morning and he was incredibly open and honest And this was, at times, a very emotional interview. We chatted about keeping secrets, feeling different growing up, what it was like being gay and Mormon, experiencing homophobia from teachers, why his grandmother was the first person he told, experiencing homophobia as an adult, and his enduring crush on a certain Mr. William Young. Please leave a rating or review on iTunes as it really helps me and helps other people to discover the podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening and here it is. So just reading about you over the last few days, when you were growing up, obviously you had to keep the secret that you might quite possibly be gay to yourself. And although it's quite a very different situation, years and years later, you also had to stay quiet for months and months on end about being a contestant on The Great British Bake Off. So I know they're quite different situations, but my impression of you is that you are somebody who is very, very good at keeping secrets. Is that right? I'm better than I thought I was. I I thought I was a bit of a gossip, but when I think back... Yeah, over the years, I've, I've held some pretty big secrets. So if you have anything you want to tell me and you don't want it to get out, then... then That's what I was thinking. You're the go-to person. I'm like, I'm like the Gringotts of secrets. I can, I can hold on to them. And, and to be honest, I'm, I'm so forgetful anyway that I'll, in two, two or three days down the line, I'll forget that I've got these big secrets. <laughs> <laughs> but how long did you, for the Great British Bake Off, was that like eight, nine months? You, you were on one of the biggest shows in the country and you can't tell no one. No, there's a, there's there are varying stages of, of sort of information release. So it was it was just me for the first sort of couple of weeks when I first got the call about potentially auditioning. And then during the audition process, it was uh, my sister uh, who knew, and I I, I didn't want to, I'm my boss obviously because I kind of tell her where I was going. But I I didn't it wasn't I didn't want to tell anybody because um, it was a secret. But it was a bit like when I did my driving test. I didn't tell, tell anyone in case I failed. So until I was absolutely sure, I didn't really say anything. But um, it's it's such a wonderful show, and the, and the idea that it's a secret is is great because we you know we get to see the final show at the end. So it's not it's not done to um, to annoy anybody. It's done because we you know we want it to be great for everybody. But it is a difficult secret to keep, and I had to tell a lot of lies. Uh, my very best friend of. 30 plus years. Wow. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, we've been we, we've been friends since about three years old. So uh, it was her wedding and I was supposed to go on her home weekend, uh, you know, this big trip to France and have this wonderful wedding and I was making her wedding cake, naturally. And I had to ring her up and say, I'm not coming to your home weekend, uh, I'm not coming to your wedding and I'm not making your wedding cake. 
and I can't tell you why. <laughs> and how did she respond to that? I think it was, uh, you know, all of the emotions. I think she was more concerned because it was very un out of character for me to do that. So I, I did actually call the producers of the show and said, she's not going to buy this. And after a while, she actually gets. She, she gets before I could tell. So I ran the producers and I said, look, she's guessed. And I think for the purposes of, of containing the secret, I think I should tell her and then, you know, it, it'll stay with us. And true to her word, she, she didn't mention it to anybody. Um, I got to ring her on her wedding day from Welford Park, from the tent, to wish her congratulations. But that was the hardest one. But there were some others, my sister-in-law, she and I were getting training to London together. Of course, that stopped happening because I'm working from home a lot. People get suspicious, don't they? They do, and you don't realise they get suspicious because when you break, start to break patterns, that's when people start questioning it. And I had to, I was saying, oh, I'm really sorry, Polly, but you know, oh, it's wedding cakes, I make lots of wedding cakes. And she would insist that I showed her these photos of the wedding cakes I was making, so in the end I had to Google image other people's wedding cakes and show them to her and say, ah, ah, here we are, this was the one I did for Windsor at the weekend. Here's one I did for Barnet. So that was a lie. And, and my favourite one to this day is a friend, an ex-colleague of mine and I would run together. We would go running in Regent Park every day and uh, he signed me up for a half marathon, which I was really looking forward to. And we were training for it. He was really pushing me for this, this marathon. And the, the marathon fell on biscuit week. That's right, on bread week. And I thought, I, I can't, if I don't do it, he'll never forgive me. You know, because he, he invested a lot in me. Uh, and so I, I panicked and I said to my sister, what should I do? She's, she's a bit of a, a health nut. She, she loves anything like that. I don't know what to do. If I don't run, then he'll know because he'll monitor my app because he, he could see my Strava app. So we, I had it on my phone and I said, on my watch and I said, I'll, I'll track it on here and you can congratulate me or, or rid me, whatever it is, you know. And so in the end, my sister took my watch and wore it and ran the marathon on my behalf whilst I was filming. And had she intended to do the marathon anyway? Or no. God, that's one hell of a sister. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she ran a marathon for you. She ran, literally ran a marathon for me. So there was like a lot of elaborate lying to keep that secret in. Yeah, and you do, you do want to keep it a secret, like I said, because it would ruin it. And during, you know, and, and when they were airing the show, a lot of people would say, come on then, who wins? And in the end, I would start to say to these people, do you really want to know? If I told you now, how would you feel? Yeah. And they stop and their faces would drop and, you know, after a few moments of deep thought, they think, actually, you're right, I don't want to know. I think it's just a one-upmanship, really. I know something that they don't know. They don't know, yeah, that's more what it is, but then it would ruin the finale. But um, going back to your childhood now, can you remember when you became aware for the first time of what it meant to be gay? And was there someone you saw on TV or did you hear somebody talking about it? Or I, I, lay, I, I grew up... Uh, very sheltered and Mormon, actually. Oh, really? I, was, I didn't I know raised, that. No, I was raised Mormon, which is uh, not something I, I sort of talk about. But yeah, I didn't come across that in my research. No, <laughs> I don't really talk about it. I did, not not through shame. Just uh, it was a life that I I lived, and it's a long time ago. I'm not I'm you know, not Mormon anymore. But uh, I lived in a very what I would call communal life, I and mean, we didn't live in a, com a commune. We lived in you know a house <laughs> in a street. My mum looked after us, and it, there was no, the life was no different. I went to church, I think it was called, because it was just across the street. But um, the Mormon community is very, is very tight-knit, so we were, very, we were part of the community. So I was very blinkered, I think, to the outside world. And to be honest, I wasn't a t really a television watcher, so I didn't know really what this word meant. And in fact, I remember my grandmother using it as an expression of joy. And uh, I, I think maybe I was six, maybe seven or eight, when I first... So the f 
felt I preferred the company of a man in that sense. And I, I, and I didn't feel it was wrong, but I knew it was different. And nothing felt wrong for a long time. I didn't feel ashamed. I don't think I was particularly extroverted as a child. I mean, my mum probably argued that. There, there are pictures of me wearing fur coats and high heels. But every gay boy seems to say that. <laughs> I don't think it was... A, I don't think I wanted to dress up. I think I just, want, I just wanted to try everything. But I had, I had toy cars and I went biking and, you know, I got scraped knees and fell in puddles and whatever. I was, I think I was just a, a regular child. But the, the thought of the thought of being gay didn't seem to come until perhaps at secondary school. And did being a Mormon, did you ever get the impression from that religion that it was, did they seem quite homophobic? No, interestingly, I never experienced homophobia from the Mormon, from in the Mormon faith, as we, I, I, well, I think the term homophobia is is far what reaches far wider than perhaps just you know a, a, an aggressive attack or or throwing um, hateful words. Homophobia can be jibing or sneering, or that we perhaps you know do with our mates down the pub, not realizing that we're actually being homophobic. But I didn't experience homophobia, just a, a lack of understanding. And also, the Mormon faith is very much driven towards family. Uh, I grew up in a large family, and I knew a lot about the large family, so the expectation of every young man and woman is uh, a man will go on his mission and return and marry a young woman and have a lot of children. And I broke that chain, being gay, and that's where the issue lay. It wasn't... What does the mission entail exactly? Well, you know, there's, there's door knockers that come along in the white shirts with little black badges. Oh, is that like Jehovah's Witnesses? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It, it's no different. You know, whatever you want to call it, whether it's Harry Krishna in the street or Jehovah's yeah. Witnesses or, or Mormons at the doorstep, you're either in a town or going door to door, just spreading the word. And it's... It's harmless, but it's a it's a, it's a rite of passage for um, well at the time for me it would have been a young man, but I think I think for young Mormon women do it now, and that was it. That was my expectation, and I, I would return and marry a young girl from from our congregation and sucky man and get married and have lots of children, which a lot of my friends from the church have done, and they're happy. But it's I wasn't going to do that, and I knew I, I knew that from a very young age. I didn't want children. You had a gut feeling about that. I didn't want to marry a girl. You knew that. Yeah. It's so weird you mentioned about the door to door thing because, sorry, you call it what's the correct name again for it? The, the mission. mission. Yeah, because yeah, I was reading Michael Jackson used to do that. And he actually did it after Thriller was released at the hype of his fame and used okay. to do it in disguise. Sorry, that just popped into my head. There. Side <laughs> note. So when you, you became aware of it then when you went to secondary school, did you experience any sort of homophobic bullying when you were there or maybe the odd bit I think genuinely I got off quite lightly I remember being bullied but not for being gay but then it just perhaps the odd snipe here and there about being effeminate or, or I was overweight I think that probably got picked on more I don't remember being happy at school but I think that's when that's when mental health issues started to kick in I just I did feel different but I didn't feel I was being attacked I think it was just very difficult and obviously being Mormon at the time was was hard as well. But I just felt different in my life. You know, everything about me felt different. And I don't I think that's what what's fantastic now is that we are embracing difference. You know, there are there are young boys and girls out there dressing in androgynously and no one's caring. And that's a wonderful thing because it's not about it's not about accepting them as what they want to be sexually or what they want to identify as. What you're saying is different is fine. It's not interesting or something to be applauded or, or celebrated. It's just fine, it's normal. I, I was very 
different in everything I did. And even now I'm very different to what I would class as, as um, you know, my peers. I, I don't watch, unfortunately, I don't watch RuPaul's Drag Race. I do get stick for it. You know, I, I, the music I listened to was very different and the clothes I wore were very different and the way I expressed myself was very different. And I think that's where I struggled with, with my, my, my sort of friends at school. But I did have a great set of friends at school and I had a great drama group. Really. So that was an outlet during those years? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, actually, it was food technology. The drama was great, and we had a great drama centre at, at my school. We had an entire building and, and a theatre, and it was wonderful. And, and I don't remember being particularly dramatic. I just mem- remember feeling happy because my drama group consisted of somebody from every sort of walk of life in the school. So you had the, I suppose you an American, we'd call them a jock. Okay. And, and then the popular girl, and, and then me. And You were the real Glee club. Completely. Yeah. And I laugh at Glee, and I don't watch Glee. I don't, I, I don't enjoy you, but actually <laughs> were that. And it was wonderful because this was the 90s. This was a very difficult time to be different. Yeah, I mean, the message out there in the public domain and in the media and with pop artists is very, very different now. There's all these people celebrating difference. Yeah. Whereas, at least where I, kind of, I grew up near Dublin and it was, you have got to conform. There is no room for anyone to have a different haircut, wear different clothes. You know, it was the, everything, the emphasis was all on doing everything exactly the yeah. same. So, during those years, was baking your escapism? Were you baking a lot at that time? No, eating with my escapism. <laughs> Not really. I, I, I well, know. a lot of people self-medicate that way, don't they? Oh, people completely. turn to alcohol or drugs or food. I think I turned to just living in la-la land, but you turned to eating. I did turn to eating excessively from a very, very young age. And I remember it started when I broke my leg. I was seven years old and I broke my leg. And uh, I was inactive for a long time. And I, I think that's when what, I would cl- what we now know as depression started. So at seven years old, depression kicked in. And I remember those feelings starting then. And I don't remember happiness before that, which is, which is I think, the saddest part. But my first sort of experience of depression was around seven and being inactive and eating sort of fill that void, I guess. And that, yeah, that, that's where it started. But I didn't bake really until, I mean, I remember baking my mum. I was nine and it was a lemon drizzle cake. And, and why those two facts stayed in my head, I don't know, but I remember it. And I think what, what my mum taught me wasn't so much how to bake, because actually it's a very simple concept and you just have to read. It's whether or not you enjoy it is where we differ. I, she taught me to, to be comfortable in the kitchen, to be relaxed and to try things. And, and I did that and I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. And it became like my sanctuary. And I remember growing up at my granny's house, we, we hung out in the kitchen. That's where the argo was and the chair was and the dresser and the biscuits were. We didn't think to get to sit in the, the formal drawing room or you know, go and sit at a dining table. Everybody sat in the kitchen. But do you think the eating food is that... I, I understand. I think some of my friends are struggling with that at the moment and they're quite down. It's, it's sort of a way of suppressing your emotions. It gives When you have some food, it kind of dulls your feelings in a way or it gives you a, it gives you a sense of relief or peace for a, a few moments, doesn't it? Is that what it is? or I think dangerously, when you look at social media now or any sort of media outlet, it, it's almost deemed funny to suppress bad feelings with something like alcohol. You know, we talk about going out drinking and, and, and hiding our feelings and it's, it's, you know, it's done through memes and it seems to be a joke. But actually, the, the, the sad truth is it, it is 
for a lot of people. It's a form of self-medication. Completely. And I, I, the feeling I get now, I haven't eaten yet today, and I'm starting to, the triggers are going off in my head, and I think, what, what, what is it that I eat that's going to make me feel better? And in my head, I, I envisage, you know, a smorgasbord of, of breakfast products. But I know that I won't feel good afterwards. So I know that I, I need to have that banana and, and maybe some porridge or something, because I know that I don't feel great afterwards. And that's, that's the trick when, when going through a recovery process through alcoholism, drugs, or, or any addiction of some sort, is for me, it's I, I can vividly remember the feeling afterwards, enough to not do it. I'm so you never fully recover from it in a way. You, no. you just, you're managing it all the time. No, I'll never be a, a non-smoker. I'm an ex-smoker. Yeah. And I'll never be over my food addiction, mm. but I can control it. And I can I control it with intermittent fasting, and that, for me, is, is a way to, to manage that process, to manage that sort of eating. And, but I don't, I don't remove the pleasure from my life. In, everything in moderation, including moderation. So with food, do you think, because there's a lot of gay people who are struggling with that, isn't there? There's a lot mm-hmm. of gay people who have different types of addictions. So like, how did you sort of break that cycle over time? Is, is, is it stress kind of compounds it, the situation, if you're struggling mentally? Yeah, hindsight's a wonderful thing. And I do look back and think, oh, in hindsight, I, I, did, I did have a, an addiction and I did cover up a lot of pain with eating. I was talking to somebody the other day about the, the categorization of gay men as, I can't remember, bears and otters and all this. The and tribes. Like, yeah. yeah. And one of them is thick, T-H-I-double-C. Okay. And I, I'm not very chewed up, so I have to have things expensive. Is that different to the bear tribe? Well, I, it, thick is just sort of a, um, just carries extra Stocky. Wear. Yeah, you know, the dad bod kind of, kind of thing. Okay. And so I was, <laughs> we were talking about it, and we ended up talking about being thick as opposed to being fat or overweight. And when, when the more and more we spoke about it, the more we realised that actually there are a lot of gay men who carry a great deal of extra weight and struggle, and I genuinely struggle with that extra weight. It, it's just a way to cover pain. You know, there are, there are a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of people, you know, coping with addiction, but, you know, there are a lot, a lot of gay men who struggle with alcoholism. Yeah, there's a huge men, number, yeah. And drug addiction and food addiction and addictions of any single kind. Gym addiction. Completely, absolutely. Anything that you do to an excess to cover up something is an addiction and it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's just about how you manage it. And I did manage it. I did cope and I did turn things around. I didn't do it in the right way. I don't, I, I did what we now know as the keto diet before too long and too, well, too quickly and for too long. So I lost. Does that cut out carbs or completely. keto? Yeah. Completely? Completely. I didn't eat any fruit or vegetables for six months. Really? Yeah. And so I, yeah, I lost a great deal of weight very quickly, which leaves you with more problems. But I, I, I don't not, I do feel proud of my achievement because I did do it. I did change the way. I wasn't proud that I'd lost the weight. I, I was more proud that I'd changed my, I was able to control my eating. That was where the pride lay because for so long it had controlled me. But I think for me it was an achievement and I, I had, in a way I had conquered this addiction. But then the weight went up, the weight went down. I struggled with exercise. I don't like gyms. So I'm, you know, I, whilst the, the, the bulk has gone, there's still a, a fat person's body, I call it. And so that's my next biggest challenge is I have body crisis issues, which were the same as, you know, which I would have covered with eating before, ironically. Um, so I now need to get over those. And that's that's actually a lot harder because I have to, I do have to wear a pair of swimming shorts into a public swimming pool where people can see me and get in and swim and get out again where people can see me. And I do that and I've been doing that regularly for six months now and it, it's still not that as easy as it was on the first day, like most things. But I still, 
I walk up and I get that waft of chlorine and I think, I've got to do this. Because if I walk away... Because you feel so self-conscious. If I walk yeah. away once, I've, I've failed. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, self-conscious is... Um, and did you feel it was, in a way, being a gay man, that body consciousness is, in a way, exasperated by the gay media and the, the gay world? There's just such an emphasis on the body beautiful. And it's very, very hard if you don't fit in with a certain look. Absolutely. The, and the expectation, I'd say the gay expectation, but I think especially with things like Love Island, yeah, and I think all men. Yeah, it's, it's social media, it's just exploded in the last few years. Completely. And it's actually destroying us as human beings. I think it, it's destroying us mentally. To, to be honest, the expectation is ridiculous, unachievable by 99.9% of yeah. the gay male population or gay, or gay population. And the older I get, the less I'm caring. If I, if I really did what was expected of me to achieve the body I want, I wouldn't work, I wouldn't eat, because I wouldn't have time, I wouldn't have a social life, and I wouldn't have the pleasures in, the life, in my life that I do. I would love to look like somebody off of Instagram. And, I, for, and for those reasons, I don't follow these people. I don't follow these accounts where... Yeah, I need to stop following them. I just, I don't get any pleasure from it. I don't get any motivation. I don't feel like they're teaching me anything. I just feel inferior. Yeah. And even just scrolling past and catching my eye, catching it, it's, it's, a, it's a reminder, it's a constant reminder. It's very hard down. when you're feeling vulnerable about your body going on Instagram. Yeah, yeah. I, exactly. Instagram is a very dangerous place for me, so I, yeah. I, I monitor the people I follow. I think it is for a lot of people in different ways. Yeah. It always reminds you of where, whatever you're lacking in, whether it's like you're done with a boyfriend, or you didn't get a new car, or you haven't moved into your new house, or there's yeah. always something on Instagram. Completely, and I, I've worked in social media marketing, and so I understand the pros and cons. But the cons for, for social media, especially especially from, uh, as a gay man, I'm talking you know, on behalf of gay men, it's shocking, absolutely shocking. And I, I, I don't want to sound like my mum too much, sorry Judy, but you know, it, it, it's shocking what is out there and what is acceptable and what is legal to do on social media, considering that you could just sign up to it. My eight-year-old nephew could sign up to Instagram, no one's going to yeah. stop him, and, and only his mother assuming that, you know, that he, he can't hide it from her. But what they can see is what is it, it appears to be harmless information, but it's visual. And, you know, I remember being younger and, and looking at all my skinny friends and thinking I want to look like them. And I'm just looking at it now at 35, and I still feel the same as I did when I was 12 and vulnerable and scared and ugly and fat, whatever else was going through my head. And so I think, you know, we were talking about responsibility. You know, I know that the, that the, the world of social media has a responsibility to lock these sorts of things out. But I think we have a personal responsibility to say, unfollow, 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 unhealthy, 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 and actually start to follow our friends. Yeah, you mentioned about your nephew there. I'm so grateful now that I was a 90s kid oh, and that I went through my adolescence in the late 90s and the early 90s because I don't think I could have coped social media at that age. No, I, absolutely not. And I, I can't cope now. Yeah, it's tough now in your mid-30s, so what would it have been like in your teens? Yeah, I mean, the way that people speak to me on Twitter sometimes, I mean, actually, not again, the majority of it is lovely, but the way that they can just be honest and say they don't like something about me, you know, to millions, billions of people, I think it's a very dark place. The person that threw a, a, you know, a homophobic slang word at me on Twitter, this is going back a while now, I, I could have replied easily. And that, I think I've replied three or four times to, to what I call hate tweets, but I don't bother anymore. It's not worth it. And you'll yeah. just remember... And this is not you know, digging at them because they've only got two followers, but when you reply to somebody with two followers, the only people that see that, uh, the only people that see it are all of your followers and their two followers. But when they tweet you, you know, only their followers see it. So you have to remember it's about, 
by responding, you're giving them airtime. You're giving them that, that however many followers I've got, all see that. So you're giving it life. You're, you're breathing life into hate. And that's why I don't do it. But I do look at that person. I think, I, I know you're hurting. And I hurt too. And sometimes, I, in my mind, I do what they're doing. I watch TV and I think, oh, she needs to learn to. And I stop myself and go, no, she doesn't. She just needs to be herself. And that's, it's a very, very hard thing. I think everyone does that about TV. But most mentally sane, healthy people aren't going to go on Twitter and start saying, you know, spewing out vitriol and saying really horrible, hateful things. I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And actually, after a while, because Twitter's been around long enough now, people are going to go, actually, anymore what's new what's the latest we need to find a new a new thing and i'm not saying twitter will die out i think eventually it will be really interesting to see in the next five ten years what's there always is something new there always is something it's inevitable there will be change but it will be very interesting to see where social media will progress onto absolutely and i think i'm looking forward to the next ethical social media site i think we i think we need to bring back ethics a little bit i don't mean you know restrictions i think just a little bit of common courtesy and politeness and it, I, I know it's old school but i'm old-fashioned but that's that's how i desperately try to live my life don't get me wrong no. i'm not perfect and no. i do have very very horrible thoughts sometimes about people but everyone does yeah but yeah, it's, so. it's human nature really. yeah so going back to your adolescence now did you have girlfriends during those years no uh, no I, did, I didn't have any girlfriends well no I remember being uh, going on a camping trip to school once and I had a girlfriend for a day and I think uh, one of us done the other and nobody cared. But I did in primary school, I did marry my friend Gemma, which was kind of sweet, uh, but I, I, I don't think it's legally standing. Although I wasn't sure about my sexual direction, obviously, I, I knew that it wasn't towards girls. I just wanted to be friends with them all. So did you have clarity on it quite early on? You didn't really go through a period of confusion. No, and I think one of the very first questions you get asked as a gay person is, when did you realise, or when did you find out, as if there was a day? And for some people it is. There's a, there's a, there's a defining moment in their, in their youth or in their um, adult life where they, where, where they finally give in and accept what is the truth. But because I didn't come up against any real sort of criticism, I suppose, or, or hatefulness, not because, not because people were kind, just because it just wasn't spoken about. It wasn't a subject discussed. And so because I didn't really come up against it, it was a very fluid thing. I remember the first time I, I fancied somebody, didn't feel dirty or wrong at the time. It just flowed. And then the first time I realised being gay was not just different but potentially bad was secondary school and it was a jive it was a, you know one of the other kids so I don't even think it was towards me but just about being gay was a bad thing and it, it was used as a, a derogatory term you know being so gay or why are you being gay and I you know my ears pricked up and I thought what, what, what's wrong with it was there a real atmosphere of homophobia in your school no no there wasn't that sounds like such a lovely school it was <laughs> I think my issues lay within me. When I do look back, I think it was quite a nice place, actually. I, I can't say it was particularly bad. I just remember being... Uh, in primary school, we would sneer that because we were Mormon and we were in a Church of England school. And I really don't think the teachers ever accepted it. And in fact, my teachers... I think I had more problems with teachers than I did with other students. I remember being called pansy by a, a teacher. Oh, really? Oh, God, yeah. That's unreal. But can you imagine that now? That would be like a sackable offence. Yeah, and bearing in mind that... 
What age were you when that happened? Oh, maybe 13 or 14. That's disgraceful. It it's really awful is. now, but at the time it was... It so was... we're a similar age. That's not that even long ago. No, no. So that was, yeah, that was like mid to late 90s, yeah. Oh, yeah, but uh, being, don't, you know, don't be such a little pansy about it. And that was from a man? Yeah, 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 from a man. Because I was talking with somebody about that the other day, and we were talking about how being bullied, you know, it's really tough from your peers. But when you get res- get a derogatory comment, when it comes from a teacher or a homophobic comment from an adult it's even worse again it feels like a real betrayal yeah. I mean those people are there to help you and protect you they're supposed to be on your side and when you find out that even they are against you it's it's even more upsetting but as a child I listened and I believed everything every single last word so as a 14 year old uh, to stop acting like such a pansy it didn't even but the thing is the sad thing is is well, the way we're acting now is a shock and, and sadness but as a 14 year old I took it on board. Were you aware of the connotations at the time? Completely. Being pansy just meant being a, you know, a, a, a boy acting as a girl, or you know, or being uh, effeminate, or being a puff, or being. Do you know what I mean? There was a very, very rarely that was the word homosexual used. It was there were so many other sort of. So many. Yeah. yeah. And so I just took it on board. And did you feel you were able to go and talk to anyone about that experience, or you didn't want to? You didn't want for that for it to escalate, so you kept it to yourself. I never spoke. Never, ever, ever. And I struggle now. I'm not a big speaker and I don't share everything because it's a vulnerability. And so I never said anything. I mean, I came out, I, I got drunk with my friends and had deep meaningfuls that we all do until, you know, until the wee hours of the morning. But I never shared my truth and I, I don't know if I ever will because it's it has become so it has become my personal identity mm-hmm. and I just I just don't sometimes just don't want anybody knowing it but I, I, it, like I said the older I get the more I realise that actually that, that dark truth is projecting out now and it, it comes out in the form of aggression not physical aggression but mm-hmm. I, can, I snap quite easily mm-hmm. over what, what would be a trivial thing but I see that it's actually my past coming out that's how it's expressing itself yeah and so whilst you know I, there are certain I don't like. I don't like certain things being done to me or said to me, which are seemingly innocent or, or, or not aggressive, but I don't like it. But to you, it's triggering. Yes, it's a trigger. Someone has hit on a particular nerve. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. yeah. So when did you officially come out? When um, did you tell your family and friends? I told my first friend, I told my sister when I was 16, and I was, I was going to say we were drunk, but I don't, I've just said the word 16 and drunk. I think, well, if anybody tries to tell me they went drunk at least once when they were 16, they're lying. I got to that age where I wanted, despite the fact that I was, I was quite effeminate as a teenager, I was very different. I was, I was abnormal. That was another word that was used quite often. But it's in everyone. Everyone is once you get to know them. I'm so glad I didn't have a smartphone. But that's oh. part of growing up. Yes, it was expressive. I was expressing myself. <laughs> Blue, black, white hair and piercings and my record player and joysticks. I thought I was so cool. I was 16 and I, I think I had got, gotten over this sort of... Actually, I hadn't. I was in the middle of it, but I was going through what I would call a normal phase, a normal haircut. <laughs> ben Sherman shirts and gel spines hair. I was actually trying to fit in more than anything. Burton, Burton shirts. I couldn't afford Ben Sherman shirts. Burton men's wear shirt. Uh, shocking blue with a, with a, you know, like a nice palm tree trimmer. I was going through that phase and I think I had sort of found a social group 
I was earning money, I was working, and I enjoyed being with my friends. And we would talk and felt that I was holding something back. And so I told my sister, my sister had always been part of my social group, but I told her because she and I are the two eldest and we sh- we've always shared everything together. And we, we know enough, but not everything, I'm sure I don't know anything about her, but we know more than anyone else in this world knows about each other. And so I thought, I, out of respect, I just wanted to know and I wanted to say the words. And sometimes saying those words, I love you, I don't love you, I'm gay, or I'm bisexual, you know, there's, there's words that we know to be true. Sometimes when you say them, even out loud to yourself, it's the truth. And that's when the panic hits, and that's when the blood drains from you, and the realisation is there. And I knew I had to feel that. And like with most things, I, I stifled it with alcohol, <laughs> because I couldn't find anything to eat. But it was wonderful. And she and I shared stories, and she's my older sister, despite being half my size, she's my older sister, and, and has always been very protective of me, and I'm sure she felt she needed to protect me. Then slowly I told the odd friend. I texted because, you know, we had phones. Just then. It was 10p a text. I was very selective about who I told I was going. About three people. But it was worth the 30p. Because I, I got flooded with joy and love and acceptance. And more than anything, just, you know, yeah, we knew. Oh, that's really good to hear. I, d- I have to say, my experiences were good for the most part. I remember being 20 and telling my mum. Oh, so you didn't tell your mother no, until I, four years later? No, I had the trauma in my life came from a family situation and, and I, I, I didn't have a great family life, I suppose. And which it, it wasn't my mum. My mum to me is, is perfect and she still is. So for me, I just wanted to retain that perfection. I didn't, she was my safety net. To me, she was all I had in the world. And so I, I was terrified of losing that and I mean I've never felt fear like it since and I've been on a plane doing an emergency landing oh really yeah and so to imagine what that fear feels like you know that you might lose your life your own life the fear of losing my mother was greater and so I never said it because a lot lot of people when they're coming out you're potentially facing into a situation that could irrevocably change yeah you're the most important relationships that you have so it is pretty terrifying it is, and I, I, I can't even imagine what my life would have turned into if I, if I hadn't. I, 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 it terrifies me to think what would happen if my mother had rejected me. And so for me, when I hear coming out stories that are bad, it makes me feel terrible. I, I just, the thought of it terrifies me. My mum was happy she is now. She loves her ego, yeah. obviously. But I'm not saying that she was over the moon. She was probably terrified for me, but she never showed me. She just, in the only way that she knew how, said, I love you. Nothing has changed. And I've known since you were two years old. I was just waiting for you to tell me. And it was never spoken about again. So she responded really well. She knew the right thing to say. She responded in the way, in the best way a parent could. For me, I, I mean, everybody's different. Was there any reason why you would think that your mother would react negatively? The human mind is a very smart thing, but it's a very cruel thing because it makes you, you, you can convince yourself of anything. Yeah. The human mind is the most powerful thing that we own, more powerful than any smartphone. And we are able to convince ourselves that the worst will happen. And I don't, I look back now and I think, God, happy Judy ever turn against this. But in my mind, it's a very vulnerable hormonal teenager, I thought she was going to kick me out. I thought I'd never see my mum again. And you, your mind always races to the worst possible scenario, doesn't it? Yeah. And I remember the, the, one of the saddest things I ever did, and this, there you go, is something that no one knows. My grandmother had dementia. She was actually the first person I told because I knew she would forget it. Okay. <laughs> um, which is sad. And I, I'm not crying because it, I'm sad about it. I'm always laughing, but I remember her face. 
She was so sweet. I told her and I knew that my secret was safe with her. And it was a wonderful thing to do. And bless her, she did forget it. I mean, she forgot her, she forgot to put her teeth in those morning. Yeah. Um, but I knew that someone I loved and someone who loved me knew. And that was most important. Uh, yeah, to have someone love me the way I was, despite the fact she forgot. <laughs> but she took it to her grave, but she promised she would. Oh, sorry, do you want to take a moment? No, 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 okay. no, no, no. I know. I, I, I better ask you a lighter question now. <laughs> no, coming out to my mum was very easy. I told her, the most, I, I, I would dig around the houses, and I think her face in the end sort of said, just get to the point, dear. And I yeah. did, I told her, and she was fine. So genuinely, I was okay. And my brothers were great. I have lots of very manly, six foot plus brothers, all with wives and girlfriends, and they love me the way I am. And I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely very lucky. So your coming out process happened over a period of time. And you started with friends and... Yes, I started... Yeah, yeah I... I like, Sister friends. Yeah, yeah. I, I, like most things in my life, I, 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 there's an unrolling process. I wasn't, I, I wasn't going to do a bit coming out. I wasn't going to do it at Christmas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, you know, in front of people. I didn't want an audience. Unfortunately, the homophobia and hate came years later as an adult. Which, yeah, can you tell me what form that took? It came from a family member who decided that suddenly my life was not acceptable. Were they quite religious? I think there's been... <laughs> there's been religious... I could tell you I'm Mormon, but I don't live a Mormon life. Uh, there's being uh, religious and then there's following faith. And I think uh, religion is often used as, uh, as, a, as a shield to justify opinion. But, um, you know, for me, I have a, a lot of heterosexual Catholic friends who love me the way I am. They don't allow any prejudice in. But, uh, you know, it, yes, they were religious, so to speak. But I think it was more that they had a very, very sad life. And so that was projected onto me. It was coming from a place within them. They probably had their own unresolved issues. Oh, completely. It's still to this day. And I, I accept that. And that's why I don't hate them. Or I just don't tend to think about them. Because I, whilst it still was horrible what happened, I don't think it's their fault. I'm not ready to give. I'd actually just rather forget the whole thing and the person. It's easier that way. I held on to it for a long time and I knew that it was damaging me. I learned to let go. You do wonder sometimes why it does trigger such a response from certain people. Yeah. Like if certain people seem to respond very, very strong opinions on it and it seems to come from a very deep place within them, like what is, what's, what's triggering it within them? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think perhaps conversely, it was shocking, but also as an, as, you know, it was shocking as an adult. I was 29 when it happened and I was horrified because it's essentially, I, I, I sort of received jibes and sort of, um, you know, words more than anything thrown at me, pansy and whatever else people think of but for almost for the very first time I had experienced true gay hate at 29 and I because I've never experienced it in a, in a sense I, I wasn't ready for it I wasn't ready I didn't know how to cope with it and I think had I been a teenager it would have been easier because I would have just put it down to that whole process of coming out this was 10 years later and someone's throwing the most spiteful and hateful words at me that I've ever heard and it was because it was personal it was a personal jive and it was about me but the fact that I was gay was as a result of something else it was triggered by something and that it was wrong and it was dirty and it was it would never be accepted and I'm 29 years old you know working and being normal like everybody else I was actually embarrassed and did they do that to you did they speak to you in that way was it one-to-one was it in front of other family members no, it was privately done but, um, which I suppose I'm you know, grateful for small mercies in fact it was done the majority of it was done by text but it, it was I, I, I can't remember what, what triggered it now I'm sure it was well any person who acts in that way 
you have to, I, what I don't understand about homophobes is why, okay, if they feel this way about gay people, why do they need to act on that? Yeah. Can they not think, okay, I've got some homophobia within me, I need to work through that. Why is it so strong within me yeah. that it needs to be expressed? Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I, I can't, sometimes I can't think what spurs that much poison and hatred and stuff because I don't have it within myself. I think there was a great, like I said, there was a great deal of, of trauma in the past. Uh, that we know of and probably more that we don't know. We've talked about some heavy harrowing subjects here today <laughs> so we're going to end on a lighter note because I need to let you go soon. So who were your big teen crushes? Who were your big gay crushes over the years? We'll try and lighten the mood. Uh, was there a, anyone who made you realise that you were gay? I don't think so. I don't. I genuinely don't think so. I don't remember. We didn't really have any gay icons. Well, I'm sure there were, but I don't remember. I'm sure I watched Baywatch and was far more interested in, in the men than the women. I don't really remember. Baywatch, they were the good old days. Yeah. And, oh, God. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I, I don't think there was, to be honest. I, you know, we didn't, we didn't have all these porn books going around now. It, was, it just didn't exist. But no straight boys in, like, no David Beckham, Leonardo DiCaprio. No, no, no. It was, and it was. A, I was very late when it came to the crush party, and then, and to this day, um, <laughs> to this day, uh, I'm sure somebody's tweeted that I, I still have a crush on them. But Will Young won Pop Idol in yes. when I was 18, and I think the crush started then. And I, and I was, I, 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 had, I did crush on him, but I think more than anything because. For the very first time for me, it was the first time I, I, I experienced somebody coming out publicly. I knew that I clocked that Will was gay during the show. Yeah, I remember friends saying to me, oh, there's this gay guy on Pop Idol, you have to see it. Well, this, I mean, I, 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 don't, and I don't think I've ever watched it since, but I remember watching it religiously and just being, just the feeling was just wonderful. He was so soft and sweet and warm and honest. And we hadn't seen that before. We'd seen gay characters in television. Uh, Wrong excessive. Yeah. yeah um, Quite colourful. Was that one from Are You Being Served? Larry, no, Larry Grayson. No, um, I've got all the names. Kenneth Williams. Kenneth Williams. Um, Graham exactly. Norton. Yeah. Yeah. It was done to excess. Whereas for the first time I saw somebody like me who was a very sweet and gentle person and he came from a family and he was, and I hate to use this word, but you understand why, normal. Yeah. I fell in love with that. Have you met Will Young? No. On the celeb circuit? No, not no. yet. I think I would worry that I would be a bit um, emotional. Yeah, well, I found a bit. But it was wonderful because he came out in the public eye and it was in the papers and it was on television. I mean, I could, I'm sure he probably wasn't ready, but then at the same time, yeah. none of us are ready. You just have to take that leap. But it was wonderful and I think he was my teenage crush and I'm. I'm I'll be 36 next week. And oh, happy birthday in advance. You. <laughs> and I, I, it, that's 18 years of, of a crush. It's very funny you should say Will Young, because I thought you have a real Will Young quality about you. I, I, maybe, I've, maybe I've sort of modelled myself on him a little bit, but I just, I just remember loving his character. And, and I've, I've always loved his music. He's got a wonderful voice. He's very talented. I've seen him on stage as well. And, and, and aside from that, I think I just, he just makes you feel good. No, William's a, a, a good, good first crush. A clean, healthy, yes. awesome crush to have. Yeah, no one too racy or, or scary. Someone who your, your man would approve of. Stephen, thank you so much for being here. Uh, it was lovely chatting to you today. 
Thanks for being so open. Sorry about the, all the tough questions. I'm sorry I cried. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. Sorry, sorry I made you cry. And um, best of luck with all your future endeavours. Looking forward to seeing lots more cake on your social media. It's coming up, and there might be a couple of things more coming in the year. Good, yeah. good. Thank you very much. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Stephen.